Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read through the first seven verses this morning and spend some time to see, and again, what's so, what's so exciting to me about looking at these churches and the letters to the seven churches is that there is a direct and deliberate message that God has for you and me today, just as much in, in many ways, uh, even more so than he did for the church of Ephesus in the day of the Apostle John. And so let's look at this letter together, and then we're going to spend our time unpacking it. Uh, by the way, um, we do have our, our binders, our listening guide up here. Um, so if any of you need to come up here and, and grab one, if you'd like to, to fill in the blanks and do all those kind of things. If, if you don't have one, these are complimentary binders, and we're trying to give out uh, handouts that go with each message. And so you guys feel free to grab one of those before you go today, and that way you can have a record and kind of keep all the notes in your, in your book uh, as we go along. So today, the church at Ephesus, uh, Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. So guys, we're going to break down the seven churches of Revelation and uh, very excited to be able to do that. That gives you a little basic geography. You'll see this map probably every time we look at it again. This is western modern day Turkey, uh, the Aegean Sea, which is kind of an inlet of the Med uh, overall Mediterranean Sea. You can see the little black dot on your screen. It says Patmos. That's where John was exiled. He was banished to the island of Patmos. This is where he saw the vision of the Son of Man. This is where he received the revelation uh, that was given to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there you can kind of see a map of the seven churches and how they uh, geographically uh, relate to one another. Today we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. I will spend just a little bit of time each week, you know, going through some of the historical background of each church. You know, there have been some amazing scholars, one of which, if you're really interested, Sir William Ramsey uh, dedicated much time and effort going back to the ruins of these ancient cities and investigating the historical records. And he came to realize that these were, again, literal historic churches that were in existence in the days of John the Apostle during the time that he received this revelation. This is, again, around 90 to 95 AD. And so uh, if, you, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, and we'll touch on some of it because some of the historical um, you know, background to these churches do play a part in the letter that, that Jesus is giving to the church in that day. And so there are some connections there and correlations that you can draw from that, but I'm not going to spend as much time in the historical background as I am in 
the overall big picture of the book of Revelation, and then most of all, how this applies to you and me today and where we are in this present age right now. So if you want to give a little bit of background in the, in the uh, church at Ephesus, uh, this, the church tradition places the apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. You, you picture Jesus, he's nailed to the cross, he's struggling to breathe because of the agony that he is entering, that he's enduring, and he looks at John, and they're standing with John as his mother, and he says to John, behold, the woman. So basically, he told John, do what? Take care of my mom, okay? Uh, you know, she, she needs you, I'm, I'm entrusting her to you. So church tradition, which I, I understand church tradition can be a little bit, you know, suspect at times, but church tradition does place John and Mary both in Ephesus around 70 AD, which was the time of the destruction of the temple. So it does seem that John had spent some time there in the community, in the church at Ephesus. Mary was there with him. Matter of fact, both John and Mary traditionally are buried in Ephesus. So I've never been to Ephesus, but I believe you can go there. Supposedly their tombs are there in Ephesus. So it's kind of an interesting fact. We see in the book of Acts that, that when the apostle Paul gets to Ephesus on in, in his missionary journeys, this is around 55 AD, um, he stays there two years preaching and teaching. He stayed, I think, in Ephesus longer than any other uh, community than he stayed as, uh, throughout his missionary journeys. He already found some believers that were there, so you know we don't know how all that worked out, but of course Paul basically plants uh, a work in a church there in Ephesus. We know that Timothy, so the letters to Timothy in, in your New Testament are connected to Ephesus because Timothy traditionally is believed to be the first bishop or one of the first uh, elders of the church uh, in Ephesus. And so when you read the letters to Timothy, more than likely Paul was writing to Timothy who was in Ephesus and he's trying to encourage him as a young pastor um, dealing with the circumstances and situations that he had going on. And then of course we know that, that we have the book of Ephesians which is one of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. And that was written, we think, somewhere around 62 AD when Paul was in Rome. Uh, and so there's a lot of background. And you're, what you're going to find that's interesting is that this is the only church of the seven churches that really has a lot of historical and biblical background. The other, seven, the other six churches uh, are a little more obscure when it comes to uh, church history and the book of Acts and what we know uh, in the scriptures. And so what we believe, again, is that after John was exiled to the island of Patmos, church tradition says that he was able to uh, be released and that he came back to Ephesus just before he died. And as I said there, he was um, more than likely buried there. Now, the word Ephesus itself comes from some Greek uh, combination of Greek words that means one who is desired or one who is beloved. And you're going to see that there is a connection there, too, as far as this uh, letter goes to, uh, from Jesus to the church there in Ephesus. So you'll see some of these pictures, guys. And what you're going to see every time I go through each historical church, all of the, the ancient Greco-Roman uh, artifacts, ruins, the architecture, all of it looks very, very similar. You always see the columns, uh, which were very common in that time. Almost every one of these cities of the seven churches had some type of an amphitheater, which uh, reminds us that the, the, the Greeks and the Romans were very much involved in entertainment and um, athletics and um, drama and all kind of different things. And so you see these massive uh, amphitheaters that held you know, thousands of people, uh, which was a, a lot, obviously, for those days. And then here's what you're going to see next, is that in 
um, Paul's day and uh, John's day, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. And it's called the Temple of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, or otherwise known as Diana. This thing was four times as large as the, Pan uh, the Parthenon in Athens. So if you've ever seen the Parthenon in Greece, this thing was four times that big. It was 425 feet by 220 feet. Um, unfortunately, uh, this place was a house of abominations. And so to go there, you would find all kind of ecstatic sexual rites and temple and male and female prostitution. And uh, I could go into detail about the graphic, horrific idolatry that was taking place in such a temple like this. But you see here in Acts 19, just to give you a little, a little bit of a background, look at what it says. Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those, again, this is Paul in Ephesus. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, found it to came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so there was such a revival in the city of Ephesus that people brought their occult books that taught them how to practice black magic and sorcery and all kind of, you know, magic arts, and they burned them publicly. Um, and so it was just a massive revival. And then, of course, that upset the uh, traders and the merchants in Ephesus. And so there was this mass riot following the revival. And this is what it says. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours has come into disrepute, but also that of the temple. So this is one of the traders of the, uh, the merchants there in Ephesus. And he says, that of the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So she was a chief primary god in the Greek and Roman uh, pantheon of gods. Artemis held her place as one of the great goddesses of the Greek pantheon. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I want to take just a second here to give you some background because we're going to run into this spirit again when we start talking about Jezebel. And so what we see here is that you've got to understand the way that pagan idolatry works. The way Satan works is that he goes by many different names and then as he moves from different cultures and civilizations and as different uh, civilizations conquer other cultures, basically he just morphs and transforms into a different name. Okay, so when you start investigating who is Diana, who is Artemis of the Ephesians, who is this goddess of the Ephesians, you can trace it all the way back to original Babel, the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, his wife, Semiramis, uh, Inanna was the ancient Mesopotamian goddess. Ish, she, again, she is known, and again, it's interesting that she's mostly known in female uh, terminology, but she's known as Ishtar, Isis, Astarte, Ashtoreth, you may recognize some of those names, Asherah, Artemis, Diana, Aphrodite, Venus, and what I would like to call basically is the spirit of the whore of Babylon. And the, the reason that's important is because two chapters in the book of Revelation is dedicated to the harlot Babylon. And so there is a connection here, and basically what I'm trying to help you understand right now, it's the same spirit. It's the same spirit that has just taken on different what? Different names over history. And so you see this all the way back to ancient Canaan 
where this is from 1 Kings. It says, they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And so, um, you know, the Israelites were always being led into idolatry and tempted to worship Ashtoreth or Astarte or Istar, whatever her name may have been. And she's also known as the Queen of Heaven. Uh, let me give you a modern translation of what she's known as, Mother Earth. Earth Day, right? Let's celebrate and worship the creation rather than what? Than who? The creator. And so there is this obsession and this manifestation in our culture today to worship the creation, to worship the environment, what I call radical environmentalism. That's the same spirit, Mother Earth, that we find in Artemis of the Ephesians or Diana, which is also what she was known as. So uh, this was traditionally the place, Ephesus was traditionally the place where the mother goddess or the mother earth was born. So again, you can kind of track all these pagan myths down. And so she is always the female counterpart or the consort to the male counterpart that we'll be introduced to later who would be known as Baal, Zeus. Uh, so again, you kind of had the chief primary male god and you had a chief primary female goddess and they were kind of the you know partners or whatever it may be and that's what you find in all of pagan idolatry so it's good to know a background of what you're getting yourself into when you understand what's happening with uh, not just Paul and what he was dealing with in Ephesus but also what John's writing to the church in Ephesus now because remember the temple of Diana was there as the church was trying to be the church in the midst of um Ephesus at this time, and Diana was a massive, you know, blinding uh, threat in the eyes of the early church because most of the people in Ephesus worshipped this, this goddess, okay, this spirit, which I think is obviously spirit of Babylon. So we'll get into more of that later. Now, this is what you're going to see in every one of the seven churches. There are seven elements to the letter, and they're all interesting and they're all important, okay? So you're going to see there's the name of the church in the letter, the title that Jesus chooses for himself to remind the churches who's writing these letters, Jesus. He's the one sending the message to the churches. He's going to give them a commendation or he's going to give them some praise. So basically, here's what these seven letters are, guys. They are report cards. They're getting their report card from Jesus, okay? Which means that we probably have also what? We probably have a report card, too. Man, sometimes I wonder what that re report card would be, right? So each church has a report card. So he gives them some praise, some commendation. Then he usually gives them a concern or, you know, a rebuke. Then he tells them to repent, okay? And then he gives a promise to the overcomer. And then we see that familiar phrase that caps off almost every one of the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so let's jump in. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We identified the seven stars and the seven lampstands a few weeks ago because Jesus told us what they mean. The seven stars in the hand of Jesus, as John sees the vision, are the seven angels to the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the what? Are the seven churches. Who's walking in the midst of them? Jesus, and this is what he says right here. He says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a brief reminder, guys, that we must always remember that unless Jesus is here, 
And unless his power and presence shows up here, we're nothing more than a big country club. We have nothing different in and of ourselves for us to come together and meet and sing and, and fellowship and, and do all these wonderful things that we think that we're doing. And that's great. And all those things are good. But apart from Jesus Christ and his presence in the midst of us, we are absolutely nothing whatsoever. So we have to always be reminded that Jesus has to be the one who is the centerpiece, the central focus of everything that we are about here at Christ Church. And so Christ is the center He's in the midst of us. He's the reminder that he's our life. He is our savior. He's our king. He's our high priest, our good shepherd. He's the head of the body. All of those things um, obviously matter when it comes to um, Jesus represented as walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. Okay, so that kind of gives you the, the name of the church and the title of Christ. And now let's look at his praise to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works. Probably good for us to stop there and just say, that means he knows our works, too, right? Um, not only does he know our works, he knows the motivation behind the work. A little bit different there, right? See, we might know each other's works to some extent, but we still don't really know the what? The motivation behind it. Why are you doing what you're doing? And is you're doing it for man's praise, or you're doing it out of guilt, or you're doing it to perform, or whatever it may be. See, he knows our works, and he knows the motivation behind it. He says, I know your toil, your patient endurance, he says, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I've tested, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Guys, this is so very important. This is a recurring theme that you will see in every single letter to the seven churches, is that just about every single church was enduring persecution. And that was no different than what was happening here with the church at Ephesus. They were enduring intense persecution for being a Christian, for being a witness for Jesus Christ. And the Lord is trying to, he's trying to encourage them. He said, hey guys, I know you're hanging in there. You, you're bearing up for my name's sake. Like you identify with me, Jesus, you're, you're hanging in there. You're, you're enduring patiently. I know your works. He says, you are, you have not grown weary. Hey guys, sometimes we have to remind ourselves. Don't grow weary of doing good. Sometimes you want to quit. Sometimes you want to give up. Sometimes you wonder, am I really making a difference? Be encouraged today. Don't grow weary of doing good. And so they were working hard. They were laboring for the kingdom. They were being persecuted and enduring underneath uh, oppression in their culture. And so Jesus is giving them a commendation. So the first thing you have to understand today, if you're wanting to, to fill in your blanks, is that the church at Ephesus, listen, this is what's so important about understanding the church at Ephesus. They were intentional. They were vigilant. They were diligent about what? They defended sound doctrine. They were contending for the faith. And they were exposing false apostles. These are really good things. These are things that we should be much aware of in our day and age as well. So they were really good at Contending for the faith, they were defending sound doctrine. So let me just say it this way. In order to defend sound doctrine, you got to what? You better know it. Do you know what are the essential beliefs of your faith? I mean, 
I take for granted that, that you guys out there know what are the essential things that we cannot compromise on and that we must stand on. And we, no matter if the whole world is screaming out against us, we have to be able to stand and contend and expose those things that are being false and being taught falsely in our churches. So these are good things that the church at Ephesus were taking part of, okay? So the next thing I want to talk about briefly is apostolic authority because this word apostle pops up and we begin to see that even in the early church, and especially in Paul's day, we see this uh, over and over and over again. There were people who were coming into churches. They would come behind people like Paul, come behind people like John and Peter, and they would claim to be who? Apostles. But then they would begin teaching the church false doctrine. And so even from the very beginning, which should not have taken the church by surprise, because what did Jesus tell us? He said, many will come like sheep excuse me, like wolves in what? Sheep's clothing, deceiving my people, to false prophets, people who are going to be bearers of bad fruit. Jesus told us from the very beginning, guys, this is something to be expected, and the church was experiencing this in John's day. And so what does it mean? What is the test for apostolic authority? Now, let me, let me help you real quick, because this is very important. What is an apostle? Now, on a very general level, an apostle is just someone who is commissioned and sent out by a church to go and do some work, to be a, a witness or a missionary or whatever it may be. So in a very general sense, we can kind of be, we can serve a function of being apostles. But when you put a capital A in front of it, there are apostles that is only unique for one generation. An apostle, capital A apostle, is someone who was an eyewitness to the life, the ministry, the death, Burial and resurrection of who? Jesus Christ. And they were people, they were the disciples of Jesus who were eyewitnesses of his ministry and they received a direct commission from him in their lifetime to go and to be the foundation of the church. So not everybody is an apostle in that sense. There was only a limited group of people. And those, again, these are people like Peter and James and John and you know the 12 disciples, okay? And so we understand that an apostle has to be and eyewitness. So let's look at some of the um, scriptures that give us credence to that. So John, in receiving the vision from Jesus, look at what he says. He said he was on the island of Patmos, and it says he was the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he saw. John was an eye what? An eyewitness. Look at what he says in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes. We've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. These were apostles and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. You see how John is emphasizing. We've seen him. We heard him. We walked with him. We touched him. We were with him. We're eyewitnesses to his glory. Okay, um, Ephesians 2, Paul says this. He says that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So picture the church like a building. Jesus is the cornerstone, and then built upon him are the apostles and the prophets, and then everything else is being built upon them. They are the foundation. They are the eyewitness the witnesses of the glory and the, and the life and ministry of Jesus. 
I love this from 2 Corinthians 11. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you have accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Paul is being sarcastic here in his letter to the Corinthians. So again, here's what was happening. Paul had established the church in Corinth, and these quote-unquote superstar apostles were coming in behind him, but they were teaching another what? Another gospel. And Paul was writing the back saying, hey, you guys sure, sure seem to put up with what they say readily enough. I mean, you're, you receive everything that they say. Why aren't you not standing on the original message of the gospel that we gave you, which is the true gospel? So there was always this tension and this, um, this problem of false teachers entering and coming into the church. Look at what he says. So again, 2 Corinthians 11, later on he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as, as apostles of Jesus Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness... But their end will correspond to their deeds. Hey guys, Satan is most heavily in working, not in the bars, not on Bill Street, not at the casinos, not in Hollywood. He's most working where? Right here. He will concentrate his efforts to infiltrate the church and begin to spread false doctrine that's packaged almost like the truth, but it just has a little bit of a lie in it. And that's all it takes to bring corruption and, te and false teaching to the church. So we have to be so diligent to hold on to sound doctrine. Paul told the, uh, the elders at the church of Ephesus. So this is right when Paul left Ephesus. Remember, he stayed there longer than any other church. And he told them, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Guys, we have to be diligent and vigilant to guard and protect sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete patience with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Guys, this is where we are. This is where we are. Jude 1, 3, and 4. Beloved, I was very eager to write you about your common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to what? Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he goes on to say, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Again, I could give you so many passages of Scripture that tell us how important it is to be guardians of sound doctrine. That's one of the things that I appreciate about Christ Church. 
We know essential doctrine. We hold to essential doctrine. We don't compromise on the sound doctrine of the faith. We try as best as by our ability. Nobody has perfect doctrine, okay? Nobody has perfect doctrine. But to the best of our very ability, we hold to that which is true. We hold to the, the, the gospel that was delivered once for all to the saints. And we are committed to stand on that 100% of the time, no matter what happens. No matter what the cost may be, guys. You're in a church right now that is guarding and contending and fighting for the true gospel, for sound doctrine. Okay? You need to understand that and appreciate that. I know that I do. Now, let's talk about the Nicolaitans real quick. Because we kind of jump ahead. But he, he brings up this this group called the Nicolaitans. And he says, hey, here's another good thing. I'm going to give you a good A-plus on your report card. You hate of the Nicolaitans. And he said, which I also hate. Do y'all know, know God hates things? It's a lot of things that God hates. He hates liars. He hates idolaters. He hates people who do evil and murder. He hates these things that are wicked and evil in the world. We have to understand that these are things that the Bible clearly says that he hates. He hates these things, and this is a very, very strong word that God is using in this passage of Scripture. And whoever the Nicolaitans were, whatever they were doing, God what? He hated it. He abhorred it. And he said, hey, it's very good that you line up with me because I don't like what they're doing and you don't like what they're doing. And so let's talk real quick. Who are these Nicolaitans? All right. There's a lot of, you know, different perspectives about who they were. I'm going to give you the best that I can. Number one, some people think it comes from Nicholas. If you go read Acts chapter six, he was one of the original deacons in the early church. And they say that Nicholas would be the leader of this group eventually who became the Nicolaitans because there's obvious connection with his name, okay? We don't really know, but there are some church traditions that say he could be the leader of this group, okay? He was a proselyte, then he was a Gentile who became a Jew and then ended up being a Christian. And so again, all of this is speculation. I really don't know if Nicholas is the guy or not, but if he were uh, very familiar with pagan idolatry, you could see how if he kind of drifted back into pagan idolatry, then he would have led God's people to also participate in those things that God hated. Maybe if the, the Nicolaitans were involved in the Temple of Artemis, maybe they were going to the Temple of Artemis on Saturday, and then they were going to the church on Sunday. And God said, I hate that because you're mixing, you're, you're misrepresenting me. Maybe that's what was happening. But there's another possibility. The Nicolaitans could come from the word Nikeo and Laos, which are the two Greek words, to overcome or rule over the people, the common people, okay? And I tend to lean probably a little bit more toward that definition. In other words, these were people who came into the church and they claimed maybe they were these false apostles who claimed to be superior and then they took advantage of the common people by exalting themselves in the eyes of the people and then they lorded it over and took advantage of people who didn't know any better. Um, kind of sounds a little bit like the Catholic Church, I'm going to be honest with you, starting out the Catholic Church, what's the one thing the Catholic Church tried to do early on as the, Greco, as the Roman Empire began to expand and the Catholic Church became so very powerful? They said, hey, there's a, there's a distinction between the, the uh, clergy and who? Everybody else. And if you're not part of the clergy, you, you can't ask questions. You don't even have the scripture in your own language. You just do what we say and we'll tell you what to do. And unfortunately, that has been a model in the Catholic Church for generations. But then we have the Great Reformation, which was wonderful because the Reformation 
Most of all, it was about putting the Bible in whose language? In the common man's language so that we could read the scriptures for ourselves. And I don't have to have a priest intercede on my behalf. I don't have to have a priest interpret the scripture for me. I can do that now because God gave me the spirit and he gave me the word of God. And so you can see how some of those things could have manifested historically over time. That's kind of my opinion about who these Nicolaitans were. We're going to find out about them later in the church uh, at Pergamum as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to them to use a very popular word in our um, news cycle right now. Circle back. All right. Servant king. So here's what we understand the Nicolaitans. If they were people who were taking advantage of the common people. Okay. If they were leaders who were using their place of authority to take advantage of people. We only have to look to who? To Jesus to find out what the true example of a leader is. A leader is a servant king. So unlike the Nicolaitans, Jesus, he is the ultimate servant leader. And he set the example for everyone who would follow after him. Guys, this is what will amaze you about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Kings and Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? Who is the one that reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. What did Jesus do to set an example? Look at John 13. He says, if I'm your Lord and teacher and I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Guys, we have a savior, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, took on flesh, became a man, and he humbled himself and became a what? A servant. He would wash the dirty feet of his own disciples. And he did that to set a what? An example for you and me. So there is no place for haughty, um, prideful, arrogant men in the church who think that they can use their position of authority to take advantage of other people and to bark orders at other people and to point fingers at other people. No, a true servant leader in the house of the Lord is someone who's willing to come and get their own hands dirty, to lead by example, to get down on the level of the people and to be there to serve other people and not to take advantage of other people. I think that's probably what Jesus was getting at here when he said he hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Now let's talk about the concern. We've known Ephesus historically in this context as the loveless church. The loveless church. So let's remember, what did they do well? They contended for the faith. They exposed false teachers. They guarded sound doctrine. Like they were doing this well. They were patiently endearing. But he said, but I got this one thing, guys, against you. You've what? You left your first love. Now, this could be translated, you, you, um, you left the love that you had at first. Or, but I think it, it, either way, you have abandoned your first love. You've abandoned your first love. So what did the church at Ephesus get wrong? The church at Ephesus had replaced their devotion to Christ with doctrine. And they were too busy. Listen, this is so, we get, we get caught up in this so easy. They were too busy doing the work of Jesus that they forgot about the worth of Jesus. Amen. 
We, it's so easy for us to do that, guys. We get so bu busy with the business of the king that we forget about the king. And so we kind of get off on there and we start doing our own thing and we kind of get so tied up in our own schedules and our own busyness and all that kind of stuff and we forget about Jesus, the one who saved us, the one who died for us, the one who brought us to himself to, to begin with, the one who demonstrated love to us in such an amazing way. And so anything that takes the place of the love of God in our heart becomes an idol. Let me say that again. This is very, very important. If you love your wife more than you love Jesus, that's idolatry. If you love your church more than you love Jesus, that's idolatry. If you love things or money, and of course we, we could say all those, if you love your kids more than you love Jesus, that's idolatry. If you love your freedom more than you love Jesus, that's idolatry. See, anything, these are all good things and things that were very near and dear to our heart, but anything that we begin to put on the throne of our heart that's not Jesus becomes an idol and we forget he should be our first love. He should be our supreme love. There should be nobody even close in, the, in our life to the love that we have for Jesus Christ. And so let's look at a couple of scriptures that remind us of this, guys. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind and your soul and your strength. Okay, the greatest commandment. Uh, I love this. I love the, the Martha and Mary story because I think this reflects us very well, right? Martha and Mary. Martha's busy. She, she's the only one in the house doing any of the work. You know, she's trying to get a meal ready. She's, she's bustling and hustling. And look at what it says. Martha was what? Distracted with much serving. And she looks at her sister Mary, who's sitting down there at the feet of Jesus, not lifting a finger to help. And boy, she is so angry. You know, and she even calls Jesus out about, it. Lord, what about Mary? Why isn't she up here helping me get the meal ready and, and get everything together? Like, what about her? And what did Jesus say? He said, Martha, Martha. Look at what he says. You're anxious and troubled. You're worried about many things, but there's only one thing that's what? Necessary. And he said, Mary has chosen that thing which will not be taken away from her. Now, does that mean that Mary should never serve and work? No, that's not what that means. But he knew Martha's heart wasn't what? Her heart wasn't right. And sometimes that's the way we are, guys. We get so caught up and busy in our schedule and we get so angry because we look at other people and, well, they're not doing what I'm doing and they're not, they're not sacrificing what I'm sacrificing. And then our hearts became angry and bitter. And here's what's so sad. Ultimately, our hearts become angry and bitter at who? At God. Just like Martha was upset at Jesus. And so, guys, there is one thing that is necessary. We have got to make sure that we make the priority of our life sitting at the feet of who? Of Jesus Christ. Making sure that we spend that intimate time with him every single day to draw and receive the love of God that he can only give us in our time of need. And so I could run through so many scriptures about love. Uh, let me give you a couple. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is, God is love. This love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. We love first, excuse me, we love because he what? He first loved us. Here's the thing, guys. How are we supposed to give something to anyone else that we don't already have? And if you're trying to operate and be a Christian in this life and you're trying to share the love of Christ or even love re reciprocate God's love to him, how are you going to give God or anybody else something that you don't already have? And part of our responsibility as Christians, guys, is that just like any good relationship, if we get complacent and we get distracted and we start putting God on the back burner, we forget about his what? His love. And then we become empty. 
and dry and cold. And it affects our joy and it affects our attitude. It affects everything about us. And that's why the, when Paul says, Thou that faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. Let me, let me share something with you real quick. Do you know that when we get to heaven, we're not going to need faith anymore? Our faith will become what? Sight. You know when we get to heaven, we're not going to need any more hope? Our hope will be realized. Our blessed hope, Jesus, will be there in our midst. But do you know when we get to heaven, we're always going to have what? You'll always have love. Because love endures how long? Forever. That's why it's the greatest. Faith, hope, and love, these three. But love is the greatest because, guys, love never ends. So what does he tell the church at Ephesus? He says, hey, guys, I need you to repent. Remember from where you have fallen. I'm giving you an opportunity. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If you don't, here's the warning. I'm going to come and do what? I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. Guys, if you go to Ephesus today, um, there's pretty much no Christian presence there at all. No church. Maybe a small pocket somewhere, but not this church. Eventually, what happened to the church at Ephesus? The Lord removed his lampstand. Apparently, they didn't get the message. That should be a warning to who? To us. Think about the church at Ephesus. Founded by Paul, pastored by John, pastored by Timothy. You think about a church that was, a, you know, had superstar leadership. I mean, these are the apostles of the Lord were the ones who were involved in this church. And yet even that church at Ephesus lost its lampstand. We should take heed lest, to, lest we what? Unless we fall. Okay? So what does it mean to repent? Guys, to repent means to remember, to turn, to remember to turn away from our own uh, self-sufficiency back to God and then to obey. We are being called to repent, just as the church at Ephesus was. Now, let's wrap up this message with this. Um, this prophetic profile is what you're going to see in every one of the churches, okay? Now, let me remind you, how do we apply the, church, the letter to the church at Ephesus to us today? Number one, it was written to that local audience, that was alive in John's day. We know that. Number two, it was written for all the churches. So what was the, here's this key. Circulate these letters to all the churches. Okay? Because there's something in every letter that is, that is going to be beneficial to all the churches. All seven churches. It's also universal. That means that you and me today have something to apply and learn from this letter. Because whoever has an ear, we're to what? Let him hear. And then I've talked to you about the profile of church history. I don't necessarily hold to that profile. I'm not going to go into that today. But I do believe that this letter and all seven letters to the seven churches have a unique application to the generation that will be alive at the end of the age. I do believe that we need to pay attention to what Jesus says to the churches. Now, have you ever been a part of a church like this? Here's the danger we can run into, guys. We don't want to be a church that emphasizes doctrine, but then we've grown cold and distant to the Lord Jesus Christ, lacking compassion. Have you ever been a part of a church like that? Man, they preach good doctrine. They're all about, you know, preaching the word of God and contending for the faith. But when you go into the church and you meet the people, they're very cold. They're very rigid. They lack compassion. They, they just, there's something missing. We don't want to become that church. Okay? 
These are churches that get bogged down in doctrinal issues. Like that's all they, they just want to always fight and argue about doctrine, 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 doctrine. Should we contend for the faith? Absolutely. We made that clear. But we can't get bogged down in those things, okay? These are churches that honor God with their lips, but they, their hearts are far from Jesus. And these are churches who are more concerned about winning an argument, preferably on Facebook, than they are really loving each other and loving the people what? Around them. Guys, we need to be very mindful that we can still have a healthy balance of contending for the faith and guarding sound doctrine and standing on the truth, but not at the same time lo losing our love for Jesus and losing our love for one another. All right? And that's what I want to finish on right here is love. And I already told you guys that some of these messages are probably going to go past 12 o'clock. And I'm sorry. We're just going to have to roll with it, okay? Um, if you got to go, you got to go. I understand that, okay? But just hang with me. We're almost done, okay? Because this is maybe the most important thing. We have the love of God in Jesus Christ. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. Now, this is, this is getting down to right now, 2021, the church, Christ church, how do we take this message and apply it, okay? We've got to make sure that we are prepared and that we are truly grounded in the love of God because there are great times of difficulty ahead. Why is that so important? This is why it's so important. Because Jesus said things like this, they will deliver you up to tribulation and they're going to put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray each other and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Look at what he says. And because lawlessness will be increased, the what? The love of many will grow cold. If we're not careful and if we're not settled and we're not grounded in the love of God, in Jesus Christ, guys, when times of difficulty come and approach us, what's going to happen? People's love will grow cold. We're already seeing it happen. We're already seeing it happen right now in our generation. Jesus said that by all people will know that you are my disciples and how you what? Love each other. Guys, we, we are called to love one another as his disciples. And then my, my Romans 8 verse that I'm probably going to pull to almost every time that we come together, look at what he says. What's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Is it going to be tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. He says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Guys, I can't stress this enough. We have got to hold on to this promise. That's why it was written to us. Because these things are coming. We're going to be persecuted increasingly more. And if we're not settled and grounded in the love of God, guys, our love will grow cold. Okay? Please hear me on that. Please have the, 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 the cross of Jesus Christ has already demonstrated that God what? He loves you. Does he have to do anything else to prove that he loves you? Nothing else. Okay? Be settled in that. All right? Now, here's your promise to the overcomer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here we go. Let's close out with this. So we have the tree of life. It's in the garden at the beginning. Adam and Eve are expelled out of the garden. Look at what, look at what the Lord said. He said, I've got to keep them out of the garden because... He doesn't need to be able to reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why didn't God want them to live forever? You ever ask yourself that question? 
Because at that moment, Adam and Eve were in a condition of what? Sin. And he said, if they go and they're able to access the tree of life in their sinful condition, they're going to be stuck in that sinful condition for how long? Forever. He doesn't want them to be stuck in that sinful condition. And so God had to keep them out of the garden in order to prevent them from being stuck in that condition. Very important that you understand that. So he put these cherubim in the flaming sword and he turned everyone away to guard the way to the tree of life. So the tree of life is in the garden. Then we need to understand that there's another tree in the Gospels. And that's the tree that Jesus was nailed to. You have a tree in the garden. You have a tree on Calvary. Jesus was nailed to a tree at Calvary to restore us to God and give us access to the tree of life forever. Look at what it says. He became a curse for us so that it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Who was nailed to a tree for you and me? Jesus. Why was he nailed to a tree? To redeem us, to restore us to God, to give us eternal life once again. There was a tree in the garden, there was a tree at Calvary, and then there will be a tree in the paradise of God. What did Jesus say as he was hanging on the cross? He looked to the thief on his right, and what did he say? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What was he talking about? Jesus was talking about the third heaven. He was talking about the city of God. Look at what it says. In the city of our God is holy mountain. It's the joy of all the earth. This is the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Look at what he says. On both sides of the river there will be growing all kinds of trees for food, and their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not, fare, will not fail, and they will bear fresh fruit every month. Revelation 21, and I saw on a great high mountain the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then he said this, through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And these were for the healing of the nations. Guys, there is a tree of life right now. It, we can't see it. We can't touch it. It's in, a, it's in a different dimension. It's in a different realm. But God said when Jesus comes, he's bringing the heavenly city, Jerusalem, with him. And what's he bringing with him? The tree of life. And those who overcome by faith in Jesus Christ will have access once again to what? To the tree of life. And how long will you live? You will live forever. Amen. I'm going to ask our praise team to come on up. I'm going to give you some... Some very basic application for today. So let's think about, let's kind of recap, okay? The church at Ephesus. What's, what's the report card? Hey, you're, you're enduring patiently under persecution. Good. You're, you're guarding sound doctrine. You're contending for the faith. Keep doing that. Good. Check. You hate the Nicolaitans. You, you hate this, this, these people who are taking advantage of the common people. Don't be like them. Be like Jesus, a servant leader. Check. Those are good things that you're doing. But hey, guys, don't forget one thing, the most important thing. We cannot abandon our what? Our first love. And I think it's so easy for us as Christians to get so caught up in everything else under the sun. And these are good things, family and work and recreation and Super Bowl parties and all that stuff, right? These are good things. 
But if we're not careful, we begin to replace the love that we have for Jesus with something else. We begin to put something else in a higher place of priority over Jesus, guys. And when we do that, we are in danger of losing our light, losing our joy. We're, we're misrepresenting Jesus to the rest of the world. And that's what happened at the church at Ephesus. And here's the thing that, that kind of troubles me. Apparently, they didn't get the message. They did not repent because eventually God, Jesus took the lampstand from them and they no longer exist. So, guys, the only way we're going to make it when difficult times come, the only way that you're going to overcome is by trusting in Jesus and by receiving and cherishing his what? His everlasting love. We cannot stress that enough. That's going to be a theme that you're going to have throughout all of these letters. So return to Jesus, your supreme love. We show love for Jesus by obeying him. He said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. You're going to obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. Okay? We have to love one another as his disciples. You know what one of the worst testimonies to the world is? Is that Christians just don't what? Sometimes we don't love each other. We don't, we don't exemplify and represent Christ well to the rest of the world. And so they look at us, they're like, man, that's nothing special. They're no different than we are. Why would I want to be a part of what they're doing? They don't even love each other. Guys, let, let that never be the testimony of this church. Amen? All right. So here's what I want you to do for next week. Read, read the letter to the church at Smyrna. It's Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Do your best to outline it on your own if you can. And continue to pray. That God would give you what? Ears to hear. Ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. All right, let's pray together before we sing one more song. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these letters to these churches, Lord. There's so much here that we can we could really spend more, more time on this, Lord. But today, I know that there's one simple message, Lord. If any of us have left or abandoned our first love, Lord, we are sorry. Help us to repent, to turn away, to remember you, to remember what it was like to first come to know you, to remember what it was like to just be overwhelmed and saturated in your love, Lord. May your perfect love be poured out into our hearts so that we can then love others the way that you've called us and commanded us to. So, Father, whatever it is in this church and among your people that is replacing you or elevating above you, we repent, we lay those things down. And we want to be reconnected with you at a deeper level so that we can truly experience the love of God and so that we can truly represent you in the way that you would have us to do. So, Father, as we go, we want to glorify your name by the way that we love you and love others. And that's my heart and my prayer in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.